Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. This is episode 252. So you know what episode's coming up soon? 253. There's that. That's next week. And that's actually with Ben Jordan of Autodesk, uh, who's going to be a guest on the podcast. And he's the product manager and responsible for the Eagle product. So on Slack channel, get your question, your Eagle questions in. I don't know exactly what we're going to be talking to Ben about, but it's probably going to be about Autodesk and Eagle. I I would assume so. The Star Wars episode. That is coming up, isn't it? Yes. Uh, So that's coming up in three, one, two, three, four weeks, four weeks. 256. Yes. All right. We usually record it like the week of Christmas. Right. Um, so, what do we? We don't have a new movie. Oh, there is a new movie. The Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Honestly, I saw the trailer for that. It looks awesome. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think that might be the because we usually do a, mo- like the latest movie is like the topic for discussion. So we should probably do that. There's also Mandalorian. I was just about to say Ma- the Mando's out, and this season is already awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty hyped. Yeah. Um, if 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 anyone out at Disney listens to this podcast, just make Mandalorian style movies. Just make the main movies like that, and we'll all be happy. <laughs> well, there is some controversy about the Star Wars Mandalorian, but not many, not many, not a lot of people. N- nowhere near as much as all the other stuff. Yes. Okay, let's get on to electronics. Um. So the Pinotar Revision Three PCBs landed. What did they land today, or had they been marinating on your desk? Uh, they <laughs> in teriyaki sauce, um, <laughs> teriyaki flux. <laughs> no, um, I uh, they finished up last Friday. I picked them up on Monday. Um, I still have to solder all the through hole components on it. Oh, I was about to say they're they're not already in in games being played. No, no, not yet. Not yet. Um, my actual problem was my, uh, I was actually going to solder them all last night, the uh, through-hole components, but the uh, my soldering iron wasn't working. My Xtronic 4040 cheapo. That trooper, that thing's still still chugging along? Yeah, the, the hot air gun works great. The iron, not so much. Oh. It, it apparently did not like being left on for some undisclosed number of hours or days or months. <laughs> I have no idea how long I left it on for. Basically, I, I think at one time I came into my my office here and I noticed it was on. Oh wow, that's no bueno. And it wasn't hot. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, so you just cooked the living bejesus out of it. Yeah, that that heater element, you know, no longer functions as a heater element. I think the longest I've left an iron on is overnight. Yeah, and it's always like you get up in the morning and like, oh, oh damn it. Yeah, something smells a little bit off in in that room. <laughs> but I yeah, I have no idea because I actually couldn't remember when I found it on. I couldn't remember the last time I used it. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's no. That that iron was there the day I started at Macrofab. That was our original iron. Uh, I I actually brought that in from from home to solder boards at Macrofab. Nice. So um. And then I brought it back home once we got proper equipment. 
<laughs> and um, and that was like five. Years I mean, that ago, thing was man. in the that thing was in the engineering lab for a while too. Oh yeah, that that too. Yeah. Um. So yeah, instead of um replacing, because I can actually just go online and get a new heater element for it. Um, I actually just went into like the junk closet at the fab and pulled out some soldering irons i was just sitting in there so i'm using nice thermotronics now um <laughs> gotta wait nice. for gotta, yeah i gotta wait for a tip to show up for it but i have a nice thermotronics unit i can use um we have uh we have metcals at uh, wmd and uh, yeah metcal and thermotronic is a uh, metcal right they're yeah. they're super nice yes that was the curry heat effect yeah they heat up pretty damn fast. It's not just that, but it's also they hold the heat way more, uh, way more effectively, I guess, than a a resistor element style. I think because they can just quick, more quickly react to the uh, the thermal load. Anyways, yeah, Rev three is done. Um, revision four. Coming soon, and not because of like <laughs> it's already a revision. Yeah, not because of anything bad. I already found some stuff that I just don't like about the layout, and I can go ahead and change it, and it will satisfy my own inner demons. So. <laughs> Your OCD. Yeah. Well, just, not OCD, but just just out, okay. So out of curiosity, what are the things that you already don't like? It's just like the how I have the solenoid power input. It's completely fine. I just don't like how. The orientation of the components is suboptimal from a space layout. Even though I'm not going to change the spacing of the layout, I just want to make sure like the I have a big I have, a, I have about a square inch of the board that doesn't have a component in it, <laughs> and that and bothers weird. you. And that bothers me, so I can like rearrange the components so that the the current flow or current path I should say will be better and. The components would be more spaced out instead of clumped in that area. Just just do the hacker maker thing and put text there. Put like a random like poem or, or <laughs> it a does picture have the or something. It does have the uh, Pinotar logo that uh, Enoch did for us oh, way nice. back yeah. in the day. Yeah, it's on the back of the board. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Oh, that's that's legit. You're gonna need to take yeah. a picture, put that up. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is to, uh, I don't know if we'll actually get to it. Is actually let like the person who does like the pin the the pinball art for the machine to do it on like the also let them do the art on the backside of the board. Hmm. Like no one will ever see it unless you're servicing the machine, <laughs> but still be pretty cool. Actually, so. if you have spare space on the board, like, nah, never mind. It's probably not a good idea. I was thinking, um, have it such that like repair log or like signature or date or something could be sharpied onto the board. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's going to be a spot for a serial number thing in the middle of the board. Yeah. Um, because I do want to actually do like tracking of where what happens to the boards and stuff like that. Um. Yeah, all the other changes we did, like we made the pads larger on the on the mosfets mm -hmm. and so it's easier to do to do reflow on them instead of making basically the pad the size of like the part footprint or you know a little bit bigger um i actually made the pads larger and put solder mask over them so actually they're technically solder mask defined pads for a mosfet 
hmm. kind of weird. But that way they have more stiction to the FR4. So when you do, <laughs> when you do re, especially on prototypes where yeah. like people you, tend to blow up MOSFETs because they um, wire the machines up wrong, um, it'd be easier to rework on them. And oh yeah, H have you ever delammed a, a D pack? Uh, footprint? I've never have. I never, but I've had reports of people have done it. Wow, you have to go to town to to delam one of those. Yes. Yeah. But and then we added diodes to the back side of the board. So oh, that's, that's cool. cute. Yeah. Are those just protection diodes? Yeah, they're they're the reverse flyback that usually go on the coils. Oh, that's right. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Cool. So, um. Revision four change mainly it's it's mainly layout changes. There's not going to be like we'll change the connector for the RGB lights because right now it's a a big uh, 3.96 millimeter pitch Molex part. Mm. We're going to switch that to a a, a two millimeter. What's it? Yeah, a two millimeter one, which is the connector we're using on all the RGB boards. So this way it just keeps the same connector family throughout the whole chain and not have to have like a special starter cable for that whole rgb serial light chain um this makes it simpler on the bomb and ordering cables so you only have to order like one type of cable instead of like two types of cables <laughs> hey speaking of cables have you, you excuse uh, man have you gone out and gotten quotes for your cables yet i actually just finished up changing all the stuff that we talked about last week i finished all those changes on monday this week and so they went out today. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so we'll know, definitely know in two weeks, because next week is is guest podcast. Um, or if you follow me on Twitter, I'll probably be posting about it too. So. Cool. Yeah. Exciting stuff. It's getting there. But revision 5 is right around the corner. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> you think 4 is going to be it? I think so because the revision three is, is production ready. Um, we're probably not going to be changing any components like part numbers and stuff. So it'll be basically probably rev four would be build a couple just to make sure that I didn't actually completely mess something up with the power circuitry and then just you know print. Right, right. So you know, uh, for you, it might projects. actually just be. Oh, I might just even be ordering a blank board and just pinning it out and making sure I didn't short something when I changed all that circuitry. Yeah. 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 Cheaper and easier. Yeah. Cause we don't need a, you know, we act or just populate even just the MOSFET section and power input and just make sure, you know, Hey, this actually does work. So, That's so in your, uh, for in your experience, do you think three to four revisions is kind of like the sweet spot? Uh, for pinball controllers. Yes. That's it's really funny because Pinheck Pinheck Rev 4 was the first production Pinheck. So, for people who are new to the podcast, Pinheck was the original pinball controller I designed like seven years ago. And actually, right around the start of Macrofab, I, I designed that pinball controller. Pinotar is the new one, and yeah, Rev 4 Pinheck was the first production version, and then the LTS or long term. Uh, was it long-term support? LTS was Rev Five of the pin, uh, pinheck. So, how many pinhecks uh, were have been made? 
a, like a thousand, thousand five hundred ish, somewhere okay. around there. Cool. I got one right, right there. That's actually oh, was yeah. the last revision ever made. That was a Rev Eight board. Oh, all the secrets are in that one. Yeah, we made we did a Rev Six, which we never actually made a release of. Um, and then we did a Rev Seven, and then this is a Rev Eight. And Rev Seven and Eight never went into machines. Um, Rev Eight has an onboard Raspberry Pi compute module. Oh, that's right. You spent a lot of time on that. Yeah, that was a lot of time for no no gain. <laughs> <laughs> learned a lot though. Learned yeah, a lot about sure. it. A lot of what we learned about Pinheck went into Pinatar. Like, it's funny though. It's like we basically started a hundred percent over though. Like, yeah, but you stripped down scratch. a ton of stuff. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it went from a fourteen inch by seven inch board to eleven by five. Was it eleven by four? Five. I was measuring it with calipers. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we have available right at our desk. Within within reach of my right hand, I also have my caliper. Oh, you have you have the the axe style, like Viking style, which is just like a, the the big ones. I have the Harbor Freight cheap style is the one that I have right here. Well, me too, but mine's only the what, six inch model? Oh yeah, I, I bought mine for for doing my CNC work. So this is the what twelve inch or whatever yeah. they have, eleven inch. I think um, Colbert, who's the uh, operations manager at, at Macrofab, he's got like the Mondo like twenty four inch one. Yeah, because like you tomahawks. guys, you, your panels there are ginormous. Yeah, but yeah, it's like a freaking tomahawk. What it looks like. <laughs> cool. Yep. So, uh, speaking of Raspberry Pi, from yours to my projects. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to do uh, this on Raspberry Pi. I'm still figuring this out. But, but uh, on my adventures in Raspberry Pi section, I ca- a few weeks ago I, I said I wanted to come up with a project that uses a Raspberry Pi, and I think I have one, and I kind of love it because it's so so ridiculously overkill to have a whole operating system to do this one function it it's so overkill that it feels appropriate for a raspberry pi because like so much about the raspberry pi is overkill uh especially for what they end up going into so i i ran into a situation last night where i was i was playing some music on my korg ms2000 which is a uh keyboard synthesizer and this thing is really fun it has like it has all the features you could possibly want minus the one that I do want. It doesn't have uh, a, a trigger out. It doesn't have a sync pulse. So it's, it's really great to play by itself, but connecting it to other instruments, it doesn't play super nice. Uh, so, so in, in the world of synthesizers, usually you have some kind of sync pulse that one master item in your whole array of gear can send a sync pulse out such that everyone is working off of the same time base it's like a metronome yeah it's a metronome effectively everyone has the same clock right so in the world of modular synthesizers that's everything everyone has to have a master clock that that they're all talking off of but in the world of like keyboard synthesizers everything is contained within the box so they don't necessarily need to communicate with other things so my 
the the thing was my Korg MS2000 has great sounds but it doesn't have great drums and I wanted to interface my MS2000 with my modular drum ra rack so I can have a drum beat that I can jam along with well I need to bridge the world between a keyboard synthesizer and a modular synthesizer and of course I could just buy something that does this or I could make it right uh, so I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with a project that's like I can start it and finish it in an afternoon, you know, <laughs> like make a really simple kind of thing. So so my thought was, could I take a Raspberry Pi and turn it into a MIDI device that would receive a MIDI clock signal from the Korg MS2000 because the, the MS2000 does have a MIDI interface. So receive the clock commands from the MS-2000 and convert that into a voltage pulse that gets sent off to the modular synthesizer, which can read in voltage pulses and um, instead of running on their internal clock, just step forward in time based off of um, that, the, MIDI that, clock. the MIDI clock that comes out. And the answer is yes. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um, this could also be probably easier done with an Arduino, right? And and like a little MIDI shield or whatnot. So I, I that's what it, what I was meaning earlier, which like I might not do it on a, on a Raspberry Pi. I might do it with an Arduino, but uh, I'm still figuring out which one I, I'd rather do. And frankly, I'd rather my computer send the MIDI information. So I would love to to send MIDI from my computer's uh, audio interface to the Korg MS2000 and then use the MIDI through on that and patch that back again to a, a MIDI to voltage converter that then goes to my uh, modular rig such that my computer is the one that has the master clock that tells both the MS2000 and the rig to march in time. So I don't know. Like I still have to figure out which method I want to do. Like, do I need this to be tied to my computer? Probably, because it's not like I'm not one of those cool guys that goes out and plays music anywhere. I'm that, I'm that like basement troglodyte that plays music down here, you know. So <laughs> <clears throat> that's sort of my, uh, I don't know. Uh, so I, I got to figure out which which oh, way man. I want to do it. There's there's of course there's one wrinkle to the the whole thing on there that I'm not sure if I want to if I want to implement or not. So. You could have a clock that just always clocks, right? That's always just at whatever tempo, at whatever BPM, it's just spitting out voltage spikes and MIDI CC commands that say clock now, clock now kind of thing. And that's fine. Though the one thing that is not great about that is um, you can, you, you do, each clock pulse doesn't differentiate from any other clock pulse. So if you have it going to your drum rig, your drum rig will just keep playing drums. Like, you can't in other words you can't reset your drum rig you can't say okay i pressed a key on my keyboard now begin the drum clock you need a little bit more complexity to that and i'm not sure if i really care about that because what i could just do is wait to play my music until the drums you know loop back around because in most cases i'm only talking about one bar or two bar or whatever well you could if you're using the raspberry pi you can put the smarts in it then that's you see that's what i'm thinking well i mean yeah, you could do that because you, you, you can read oh only trigger the drum clock when this certain key gets pressed and and effectively what it is is my my ms2000 is played by me that's an actual keyboard so like 
I control the reset. But my my modular rack is not actually played by me. It's just receiving information from whatever it's receiving. So really, it, it has two signals. It has just the, the traditional clock signal, but it also has the reset signal. And the reset signal is basically just says, go back to the beginning of your pattern and start mm -hmm. from there and just listen to the clock from that point. Um, I just don't know. I, I, think, I think what I'm going to start with is just the clock configuration and the, uh, the translation between MIDI and voltage and start from there and just play with it. And if I really need to add the reset pulse, then I'll figure out how to do that then. So I don't know. I think that's kind of funny to get eight gigabytes of Ram and like a full, a full keyboard system to be able to listen to a MIDI command and send out one voltage spike. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my adventures in Raspberry Pi 4. I got it. You can you can play Doom on the Raspberry Pi with your MIDI keyboard with your synthesizer. Oh my god, that would be incredible. Yeah, you totally could. I mean, the thing about MIDI that really really sucks is it is super slow. Yeah, like just it's brutal slow. So, um, I mean, I, you, you could play it, but it, it would be awful to play. <laughs> like, key in, inputs would be pretty laggy. Someone, ha someone has to have a Raspberry Pi port of Doom. Like, that has to be a thing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole website dedicated to things that run Doom. Yeah, what is that website? Is it Will It Run Doom? Could be. Uh, cause I, I swear I saw one the other day, uh, where someone got doom running on a pregnancy test. I think they were just using screen. I don't think they were actually running it on the circuitry in there. Well, I'm sure that's the case in, in, with most of these things, right? No, most of them they actually, uh, get it running on it. I could oh be wrong. Oh my gosh. This toaster yeah, can run doom. doom? All right, we're getting off in the weeds here. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what the website is, but I think it's something like Will It Run Doom or, or whatever. Run Doom in Task Manager. <laughs> That's great. Okay, yes. Um, okay, so what I want to talk about is the uh, PCB serialization. This was a topic a couple weeks ago. We just haven't gotten around to it uh, to talk about it because we just keep coming up with amazing interesting topics that kind of supersede this but it came up in the in the chat uh slack channel a couple weeks ago um is uh pcb serialization and other unique markings for controlling i guess inventory or tracking your pcbs for testing and programming um so how do you do that at work if y'all do that uh, we actually do not serialize early on in the process. We do it um, way later in the process. And one of the reasons <coughs> excuse me, why we do that is it allows us to break apart runs if necessary uh, throughout the process. Let's say we have 100 PCBs and five fail in testing. We can actually break those apart and send them off to engineering and then pass the other 95 that do pass and serialize those so we serialize late in the process it just works for us because our our um, 
quantities are lower. Oh, no, that's a completely valid method. That's what we mostly do here at the fab, too. It's um, the main the main thing is, is uh, we do it kind of like as, as QA control, quality control is uh, making sure your everything gets, you know, looked at, tested, programmed, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever post assembly you need to do. Um, I kind of look at it as like post, maybe post AOI is what we typically do, but not not just, uh, let's see, go beyond actually like, what do we use it for? But like, how do you do it? Um, stickers, markings. I think we were talking about in the Slack channel, like using silkscreen to change it or stickers. Uh, I personally like stickers the best. Um, silkscreen, changing the silkscreen tends to be very, very expensive. Um, mainly because you got to think of the process of they're actually silkscreening with a screen uh, that that marking on. And so they have to change that screen for every single panel. Right, Which, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to do it that way. No, um, or doing it. I, I I saw some people do it in copper as well, and I'm like, oh my god, how expensive that is! <laughs> so basically, every single every single PCB is different. Right. Yeah. New Gerber's for each serial. Yeah, every serial number. Yeah. And I remember at the Fab we uh, we had found polyamide stickers that could be printed on and they were high temp so you they could actually be applied to a panel before it even goes in the reflow oven yes yeah and that's how we track panels right. is with a polyamide sticker and um you have to get a you don't have to get a special um printer for but you have to use a a printer a thermal it's instead of like a, a direct thermal which is like what most people's uh when you print labels out for shipping and that kind of stuff that's a direct thermal um, but you have to use a thermal uh, transfer tape or film. They call it film, transfer film, which is a basically the film has a higher temperature um, ink, I guess. I don't know the exact science behind it. And then it transfers onto the polyamide label. And then that material, uh, the polyamide label won't discolor because it got hot mm-hmm. because it's not direct thermal. Um, I don't know what the exact chemical reaction is or not chemical reaction. It's it's probably a lot like toner. I'm guessing. Yeah, Steven's shaking his head. I, I mean, don't know. And, and, an adhesive and an ink. It could be an adhesive, yeah. Yeah, an adhesive and a, a ink that after it cures is not susceptible to high temperature. Yeah, could be. Seems to make someone sense. Someone knows. Someone will correct us. <laughs> Without fail. But anyways, you use a... a Polyamide label, yeah. That's got a uh, thermal uh, film transfer to print on it. And if you so if you have like a zebra printer or whatever, just make sure it has the uh, ability to use a transfer film. And that um, that's nice if you are wanting to serialize the moment your your item hits the door. You can yes. print it out, stick it on, put it in inventory, and then you're serialized from day one. Yeah, um, we we use those when we're doing all post QA2 because in case you have to go back and do rework, you don't have to reprint a sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, the sticker is going to live through reflow, uh, live through rework. But um, kind of like the example I will give is 
the process I like to do, especially for uh, mid-volume stuff, is to um, basically once it comes out of reflow and still in panel, is sticker everything then. And I generally will just print, a, it's just a serial number, it doesn't matter, right? Um, and sticker the entire panel up that way, then depanelize. And that way you can also, so if you have a panel number, like here at the fab, you can associate the PCB with the panel ID. And so then you kind of have an idea of like, you, you can use those as like mini lots. Um, and so you can track uh, failure rates that way. Um, but that way, th throughout your whole process is you scan that barcode from the get go, instead of like coming up with a serial number ahead of time, and then applying it to like, that, that, um, I think ahead of time is the wrong word. Um, instead of like reading an ID off the, uh, like, let's say you had a, a serial number that you can, the, the chip can generate or something like that. Um, a unique identifier, or I think this was a, a Mac address, right? Instead of reading that and then printing a sticker, like you don't really have to do that. You can just put a unique number on the board and then later down the road, associate that unique number with that Mac address in a database somewhere. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a lot easier from a process standpoint. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> well, yeah, from your system level, as opposed yeah. to... Um, pre-configuring all of those numbers and then having to associate everything you can associate at the time that you're uh, breaking everything apart. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, uh, yeah, this is a couple projects ago, but yeah, we had that problem with, um, we were doing the Anon XOR badges one year and each, um, badge had a unique identifier, right? Well, we had it was like baked into the firmware so each board had its own firmware which had that unique code in it right well all those got flashed and then we had a whole sticker list and so you had to go find you take the badge and then get the unique identifier from it and then have to go search the sticker sheet oh that sucks <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was a and were they super... were they at least sequential on the sticker sheet or, or were uh, they random <laughs> it was when we started out, they were sequential. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible. It was pretty rough. Yeah. Um, and so going the opposite way is the best way. Basically, print your sticker sheet and then just randomly assign those to boards because it doesn't really matter. It's just a unique number. It doesn't have to be in order. And then you assign um, anything that's unique about it to that number later. Makes it a lot easier. Down the you road. see, uh, we we have it even easier at work. Uh, what what we'll do is we get boards all the way through assembly, through testing, um, and and when it comes time to pack them into their retail ready boxes, that's when we say, oh, you know, this order was for a hundred ninety eight of them got through testing, so print me serial numbers X through X plus 98. And it does that. It assigns them to those. And then it prints a sticker for both the unit and a sticker for the box that it goes in. And we, we, we stick it on both things and then you're done. And so those other two units that maybe failed testing or assembly or whatever, those go to engineering and they get pushed into the mix later on. And we always know what serial numbers are attached to what other or where they go 
because we do it almost at the very end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really depends on what you really care about tracking. Right. Um, do you care about that that PCB, you know it's life from the moment it hits your dock? Like, you, you individually label each PCB in the panel before you even assemble? Some people do it that way because they need that level of tracking for doing... Um, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the standard, but there's a... It's not. It's not the any of the military ITAR? standards. No, it's not for ITAR either. But it's um, it's not the ice. It's not ISO nine thousand. But this is another one that is. You basically have to. You have to track the the material all the way through for. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Um, uh, for material reasons. Actually. Okay. It's actually. It's like actually like where the material comes from is what they care about. So have you have you heard of Magic PCB? I, I'm, I'm sure you have. I think Magic PCB is a is a Kleenex brand name of of this kind of technology. But uh, you can you can purchase PCBs with an RFID tag um, buried inside the FR4. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I I've seen. I'm looking at the website now for Magic PCB. Yeah, um, I've seen stuff like this, and yeah, it get, it, you like router a pocket in the side of the board of uh, the panel. Well, you, in in your board files, you just define an area where you say it's acceptable for it to go over here, here. and then and then the PCB manufacturer just does that themselves, and then you always have tracking capability of the PCB, and you have effectively a serial number installed in the FR4 itself, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of I don't know. We talked about that a while ago at at um, at the Fab a long time ago. I mean, it, it it significantly raises the cost of the PCB, but it's pretty cool to be able to just you know scan and say like, oh, this PCB is this, and then you know if every station workstation has a scan capability, you can get log uh, tracking history of everything. It's mm-hmm. pretty. I don't know. It's pretty neat. Yeah, it's one of those. You can do the same thing with a sticker. This is more of you're also you basically going beyond the sticker now because it's getting done at the PCB fab instead of at your dock. Yeah, actually. Uh, so a friend of mine um, got a job a few months ago. It, this is Colorado. So Colorado has two main industries in terms of tech, and that's medical and military. And and this guy got a, a job at a military uh, place doing electronic assembly and He's not allowed to talk about what he does, but he did talk about the process, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so they have people who walk around the assembly floor, and if if you have a tool that's been lying on your desk for 30 minutes and that person, as they walk around, has seen you not use it in 30 minutes, they will come and they'll put it up for you. They'll put it up on the pegboard for you. Like... There's like predefined areas where every tool goes. They always go there at the end of the day kind of thing. The end of your shift is you clean up and you put all your tools back in place. But every tool that this company purchases, they embed a tracking device in it and they can actually ping. So if you lose a screwdriver, they can ping it and the system will say where it is in the building. Like they can they can triangulate effectively where your tools are in the building. It's like that game we've been playing. Yeah, yeah. We've been playing a game called GTFO. Oh, it's great. Which is a four-player co-op horror sneaky game. Yeah. And um, there's a system where you actually use terminals that's like a DOS prompt, and you can p- 
ping items you're looking for and they pop up on your HUD and they it basically just like that. It's it's effectively this, yeah. Which hmm. I don't know, that's like that's way, way, way next level manufacturing. That that is like the enemy cannot know what that you used a number two screwdriver to screw this thing together. <laughs> that is five hundred dollar toilet seat level manufacturing. Well oh, that's five thousand dollar toilet seat <laughs> level. <laughs> But but honestly, that would be super, super awesome to have in a manufacturing floor too. Just if you could be at your computer and be like, oh, where is XYZ subassembly? And you can be like, oh, it's on Timmy's desk over here, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh man, that would be awesome. So I think we're in a consensus that stickers are the way to go. You know, I, one other one other suggestion that I've done in the past on on small runs, say fifteen or less boards. Uh, I'll just I'll just put a big square or a big rectangle of um, silk screen on my board, white silk screen, and Sharpie shows up really great on that. You can just write the serial number right on that, mm-hmm. and it that makes that works really well for low volume stuff. Yeah, and I would say um, what I'm going to do with the pen, uh, the Pentatars is I have three of Rev three, and I'm going to label them one, two, three, and so that way I know. Where which one goes where and then what happens to it? I would have never guessed you would have done one two three. Oh yeah, A B C. I should just pick random numbers. <laughs> yeah. Do you have board eight three six two nine three four two? <laughs> out of three. Yeah, out of three. <laughs> oh, oh that's awful. I'm sure there's um, there's standards around how to actually do that. Frankly, I've never run into them, though. No. Um, you can also do laser etching. I've done that before. Uh, laser etching, like, um, tops of ICs. or Because um, that's how they put those markings on there to begin with, is they laser them. So you can laser another spot on, like, a big IC. You can just laser a QR code on there. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, we used to do uh, chemical etching at, at my first job. So we had these uh, cylindrical devices that were made of uh, 304 stainless. And we had a printer that, that would print out, uh, uh, what are they called, the films for it. So you could you could type in your serial number, it would print out the film, you'd stick it to it, and then you'd paint it on with some really nasty acid, and it would uh, it would etch into the, the stainless, and it's there forever. Oh, yeah. And, so. then, and then they bought a laser, and that took care of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit faster and easier. Faster, easier, safer. Yep. Yeah. Cause it, yeah, it was it was kind of funny just see people like with some pots of really nasty acid just painting it onto these things and like eh. <laughs> it was safe, but it was also still like yeah, there's got to be a better way to do this, old school way. That is old school, yeah. Yeah, we can always go back to uh, um, a punch set. You know, we use we use one of those at work actually. Um, if if we so so punch, we sell numbers on it. We sell replacement panels. So if if somebody gets like if their panel gets bent or scratched or something like that, they can purchase a new one. Or if they have an old version of ours that's silver and they want to purchase one of our new ones that's black, they can purchase one of those. Um, but just for quality tracking purposes, we actually flip all of the panels over and we we hammer in a punch of the letter R onto it for replacement. Uh, so if we ever get one back for an RMA we know that they took it all apart the customer did and that voids their warranty ah gotcha interesting so, and 
we're punching into 5000 series aluminum like you could i mean you could basically flick it with your finger and and punch the <laughs> the, the letter into there it's super <laughs> soft aluminum when i was anodizing some aluminum uh when was that last winter i think um punching an anodized aluminum is pretty tough is it really? 6000 series aluminum anodized trying to do a, a good clean punch Just on that plow is. through the uh, anodized layer that stuff's yeah, pretty it's, hard it's pretty tough yeah <laughs> especially i was surprised how tough it was especially since i did it in my backyard <laughs> so nice so last week i was i was talking about uh doing some repairs um and on thursday was it thursday I, yeah i think it was thursday i posted up a, a handful of pictures of the Roland TR-606 drum matrix that I was messing with on there. And uh, really, I posted a bunch of pictures just to show people that, like, it's impressive how much they shoved into a small envelope, given that it's all through hole. And and someone even commented, I apologize, I don't remember your name, someone commented where it's like, they they didn't think that it would all fit in there. It was like, no, no, like, it, it all does cram into this little tiny space. And it's like, there's cutouts in the boards that fit through pots and all kinds of stuff. It's, I don't know, it's ridiculous to, to what went on with it. But effectively, so this drum, this drum matrix has a row of buttons that you can, basically you select what drum you want, say, kick drum or whatnot, and you have 16 buttons in a row, and you can select at which buttons you want that to be active so as time goes across whichever buttons are active it'll trigger the the drum so you a can drum. you can create your beats based off of those 16 buttons and with this unit everything functions but it it every single step triggers every single drum so it's like somebody with sticks just hitting everything every someone time just, the clock goes yeah someone's just kicking the entire drum set off the stage yeah yeah exactly so obviously <laughs> there's something wrong with it there uh so so one of the things i noticed with with the device every single analog section works like you turn up the volume on every drum module they all come together and function properly uh and a lot of the functions that seem to be processor related are also working. So in other words, so when you press a button to trigger a drum, uh, the, the, the light actually flashes. So what that tells me is, uh, I mean, I know under the hood, there's not some kind of like timing circuit that could cause an individual LED to blink. So if something is flashing at a particular rate, that means the processor's thinking about flashing it, which means the processor is actually running in some capacity. So it doesn't seem like the issue was uh, in the processor and all the analog circuits were working and all the analog circuits get their triggers directly from the processor. And since everything is triggering all at once, that means that the processor for each step is sending out triggers for everything. The one thing that just doesn't flat out work is that when you, you, when you select buttons to actually um, set up a sequence, it doesn't accept the sequence. In other words, it doesn't remember what you pressed. So I started looking at the RAM and that's sort of where I've pointed my finger. I don't, I don't necessarily have anything to prove that at the moment, but it just seems like everything in the whole circuit is working except for storage and memory because you can't write anything, you can't recall anything, and it doesn't remember anything, but it functions. So that sort of... Well, it me, does remember one thing. It remembers that? to fire everything at once. 
<laughs> well, what I think that is actually is the RAM is busted, so it's going to RAM, and it's like, oh, give me everything on every step. Yeah. Uh, so every time it accesses RAM, it probably gets an everything command. Uh, yeah. So everything's I, a one. Th- that's what I'm thinking. Um, I'd really, I have no clue. Uh, on that, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I guess like uh, I maybe I was a little lazy. LDA I didn't actually the, uh, probe the lines from the RAM, so I don't know what it's getting from the RAM. Not not LDA DLA. You can DLA the the RAM bus. I could, but. or I could just do what I did: is look up what the RAM was and purchase those those uh, those <laughs> chips. Which this thing is old enough that it had RAM with part number UPD four 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 C, which is obsolete. But apparently there's a drop-in replacement. It's just in a PDIP 18 package, and it's uh, the 6514 SRAM. Uh, so I purchased two of those, uh, and I'm going to pull them off the board and shove them in. And, you know, fingers crossed, that's the only issue there. So everything else seems to work pretty cool. Hmm. Those are Those are fun repairs where it's just, it boils down. Like, to be honest... Repairing the digital stuff is is more fun than the analog stuff because with the analog stuff, if something's wrong, a lot of times it's not wrong. It's not binary wrong. Like binary wrong means it just doesn't work. With analog stuff, like if it's wrong, it's like drifting or it's going out or it's started to get noisy or something. And those are always way harder to fix than like, oh, this one thing is broken. Replace it and you're good. And Well, in some cases of that, you want it to do that. It just drifts too far out of spec. Yeah, but that's even, like, you have to then know the spec. Yeah, exactly. The spec with digital is work or not. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what what they call that back in the day? Um, chip, was it chip bending? Is that the uh, term? Circuit, circuit bending. Circuit bending, that's the term. Yes. Circuit, yeah. They on purposely make the analog section not good. Oh well, yeah. With circuit bending, like the original way, it basically started is you get a wire and you just start touching things together and yeah. see what the result was. Actually, what's funny is that's the first since I knew this entire thing ran on nine volts. I knew I wasn't going to hurt myself with anything. So what I started with was just touching it everywhere and pushing on things and rubbing my fingers everywhere to see if I could affect the circuit in any way. Because uh, a lot of times with through-hole stuff, you, you hit a cold solder joint and just touching it fixes it, right? Uh, and or so, adding enough capacitive like bend to it. Right, right. Well, and that actually... I can... So this circuit has... Um, it has a uh, gosh, what is it? it? Has a Schmidt trigger oscillator in it that is uh, what controls the tempo, and 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 more than the tempo, it just it controls the oscillator for the processor, which is highly sensitive to uh, to extra capacitance. So you can actually overclock. I'm doing quotes. You can overclock this circuit by just sticking your thumb on the PCB in the right, <laughs> right spots, <laughs> but it does work. So, uh, hopefully those will come in. I, I ordered those chips a few days ago, and I still haven't even gotten a shipping uh, notification. But then again, it's Thanksgiving week, and yeah, everything and grinds COVID. to a halt. Yeah. Well, I ordered a, a replacement, um, complete side tangent, but same thing, I guess. Ordered a, because I bet you ordered it on, on the Feebay. 
I don't know. I ordered this directly from a IC website, a Jamaica, a Jalico or something like that. Okay, never mind then. Yeah. My story is not relevant anymore. <laughs> Do you have another topic or are we done for the day? Oh, I guess we've plowed through your topics, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Yep. Remember, we did. Uh, we brought up Ben at the very beginning of the podcast. No, I just saw. I I saw three bullet points, and we, you you're totally right. We talked about three, but uh, no, I think I see, think because I, I cheated. Me. I talked about two of mine in a row. Oh, I see how this is. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to be that extra. Yeah. No, I I think I think that's that's good for me now. Okay, so that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.